Welcome back again, Brown Girls. It's Ashanti Golar, host of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. Today, we're talking about the pandemic's effect on our nation's schools. Our first guest is president of the National Education Association, Becky Pringle. We talk about how children were left behind during the pandemic, what we can do to support them, and the importance of Black educators. Our second guest is Ebony Thornton, a Spanish teacher from Georgia. She talks to us about her experience teaching remotely and sheds light on the mental health effects on both students and teachers. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, everyone, we have someone very special who joined us today, who took some time from their busy schedule, educating our kids around the country, making sure they have a great education. We have with us Becky Pringle, who is the president of the National Education Association. President Pringle, thank you for being with us today. It is so good to join you. So first, let's talk about how are you doing during this time? How is your family doing? We're still in the middle of this pandemic, and we know that a population that was very, very much impacted by the pandemic was our teachers and our students. Whoa, so that's a whole nother podcast. (laughs) Uh, Let me just say thank you for asking. This has been a difficult year for all of us. There's just no question about it. Um, uh, as I say to a lot of people, you know, who who knew how to exist and and survive and thrive in a pandemic? None of us. And so as I talk with people who wanted to uh, not think about how we center our children, how we uh, think about the opportunities we have yet to create in this moment, uh, and throwing a lot of blame and shame around and all of that. I always stop folks in their track and say, we're in a pandemic. Say it again. Exactly. So who who amongst us knows how to do that? I, I would tell you, Shanti, I, I had the great fortune to have my family with me. My son and daughter both live in New York. And as you know, that was a hotbed at the beginning of the pandemic. And so both of them said, Mom, can we come to you and hunker down? And I said, yes, they bring with them my grandchildren. So, you know, that was a big old yes. (laughs) I spent this year and a half with an eight-year-old learning in a third grade virtual classroom in my basement, two adult children, and a little four-month-old who is now 20 months old living with me. saw her walk and talk and everything. I have lived this reality from uh, 360. <laughs> so when I talk about what, it, what it's like, the challenges the students are facing, I know what that, I, I'm experiencing it myself. Right. But I've been in, extraordinarily um, grateful for having family, uh, having the opportunity to visit with virtually or visiting schools across the nation to see what educators have done um, as educators, as parents themselves, as humans in this moment, I have been so proud of them and honestly excited about our future and what we're going to build together. So when we talk about you having an up close and personal view, you really did with your family, leading the NEA and 
I really appreciate you hitting on the point that teachers are also parents because I think so many people forgot that they're just not here, you know, schooling your kids. They also have to do the same for theirs. So when the pandemic hit, let's go back to the beginning. What were you immediately thinking when you knew that the majority of teachers and students couldn't be in physical classrooms? And how was that going to impact our education system? You know, I immediately started thinking about the disparate impact. <laughs> you know, that showed up right away. But then here's the irony of the timing for me is that uh, the NEA had just convened over 60 groups education groups, civil rights groups, at the end of February, February 2020, we convened them in a coalition that we called the Homework Gap Coalition because we had so many students and families who did not have access to the internet, who did not have technology tools that they had at home. And we already knew that they were going home and coming back to school with a gap of opportunity because so much of their homework now required that they had that connectivity. And mm -hmm. our Black and Brown and Indigenous students did not have that, and families did not have that access. And so we had put together this coalition to, to address that and to demand from the federal government that they allocate funds to close that gap within a month. It was no longer about the homework gap. It was about the learning and access to the classroom gap that, again, disparately impacted our Black and Brown and Indigenous students, our students living in poverty, our, our students with disabilities, you know, our marginalized communities that had always, already and always been impacted by these inequities. Now, all of a sudden, their very access to learning had been cut off from them, their access to meals Mm -hmm. You saw that, Ashanti, you saw that on full display. Our students in our schools were taking part of their meals home for their families. Our food service workers are so fabulous. My mom, she's a head cook at a preschool. And they were already packing extra for their students, right? Because they knew their families weren't eating over the weekend and things like that. So right away, they realized, oh my goodness, our kids have to eat. And so mm -hmm. they right away started those food drives and turning library parking lots into hotspots and delivery for food, um, those kinds of things. They knew the challenges, you know, everyone else is start, was starting to talk about the mental health issues and, and all of those things. We already knew that. We were already making, standing in those gaps too, Sunday, trying to connect them with healthcare professionals, mental healthcare professionals, when we saw them coming into our schools with those needs. Of course, those needs just grew and grew mm -hmm. and grew. And then all the crises that it spawned, the healthcare crisis, the economic crisis, all of those things, in addition to just the social distancing of our students from each other, from us, it was quite the struggle. And that's what I thought about right away, is that we didn't have built in those systems and processes and structures to bridge that gap for our kids that were away from us physically. But we got right to work. And then, you know, our work to demand that the government stand up and step up and provide those, those, those funds that we knew our kids needed. Everything that you said, just so true, because we know about school lunches, how so many kids, families depend on them. But the piece with the internet access is actually something I've been talking about for a while, that 
home internet access is a luxury. And this woman actually went off on me at a conference one time because I was just talking about work that we want to do in rural areas and they wanted to connect with people in rural areas. And I said, you have to meet them where they are. Not everyone has home internet access. And she was like, well, if you're here at this conference, you have internet. I'm like, no, you don't know what people have done to get here. There's still people who will go to a public building that has internet access and printers to get the things that they need. And particularly with students, I remember there was this one photo that went viral of a young boy at a Mac store doing his homework. And everyone's like, oh, isn't that so sweet how the Mac employees let him use the computer? And I'm like, I don't see sweetness. I see inequity. I see the fact that he doesn't have this at home. So let's really talk about that. And I really want to dive into this mental health piece some more. You know, when Biden and Harris put out their plan on the campaign trail about schools, the thing that really spoke to me was they had in there a piece about mental health and supporting the students when they came back. Because I have so many colleagues who were working, who were homeschooling and saw that struggle, but also the real struggle where the younger kids were talking about, what do you mean I've gone on to the next grade? I, I, I haven't graduated yet. I haven't seen my friends. We haven't had the pizza party. And if we're struggling as adults, we're seeing suicide rates go up. What are our kids really going through? And then we can have a whole conversation with the students who have just gone missing, who are unaccounted for. Yeah, yeah, that's, it's heartbreaking. And can I just say that there is just uh, uh, something a little surreal about, but so incredibly hopeful, encouraging about that we have an educator, an NEA member in the White House. Let, let's give our snaps to Dr. Jill Biden. My goodness. So when you say to me that President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris are talking about these things, he's here. He has her in his ear. And he'd be the first one to say, if I'm not listening to Jill, then I'm in trouble. And right. we all know that's true. He's not fooling around. But she's been talking about these issues forever. And I bring her up in this context because I could bring her up in a lot of contexts. But one of the things that she talks a lot about is that we're not paying enough attention to our young people, too. She has always been a champion for the students who attend community college. And those are usually the students who are from generational poverty, right? They don't, they don't have the access and the opportunity that other students have. Um, and so she sees them coming to her with those um, increased needs around mental health and the need to be supported by caring adults as, as this child who has made the choice to continue their education, they need that support. And so she's been a champion of that forever. Um, and so, you know, she's in the White House now and especially after COVID um, mm -hmm. uh, being that champion and understanding that. And one of the things she's helped us champion and, and, and President Biden and, and, and Vice President Kamala Harris, too, um, have been huge champions around. And that is the work that, that we at the NEA are, it's a priority work for us. And that is on scoping and scaling, spreading across the country, community schools. Mm -hmm. And the reason why they're supporting us in that work, and it actually uh, a huge amount of funding in the American Rescue Plan 
and also President Biden put an increase of $400 billion into his budget. Now we have to go through the sausage making of, of when, how, you know, how bill becomes a law. So, but in his budget, that's what he's calling for. And the reason he is doing that, he has really listened to us. He's listened to educators. He's listened to Dr. Jill saying, Hey, this is a reality. If we're going to be able to help our kids, all of them, then it's going to take all of us. It can't be just left on the school and educators. We've got to address the housing situation. We have to address the food deserts. We have to address the healthcare system. We have to address the fact that many of our students who were learning virtually last year, you talked about missing kids. Well, you know, that's a lot to ask a fourth grader to get online if they have access and not have an adult help them navigate those technological problems. Now, usually they're helping us navigate tech problems, but nonetheless, you know what you know what I'm saying. And mm-hmm. so to have that adult there in our community schools, you know what was happening? I had a theory on the case about this. I, I thought that our community schools were gonna fare better through the pandemic. And so I asked our staff to do some research around the country and, and and my theory was proven true. Did I say I was an eighth grade science teacher? So I'm always about the theories. And- love it. Love it. This is why we have President Pringle on the show, y'all. I want to put out a hypothesis and then I want to get some evidence. Anyway, so I got gathered evidence. And, and this is what I found out. That in fact, our community schools, those that had been established, and even those that were in the infancy stage, did better than anywhere else. And the reason they did better is because they already had the relationships, the systems, the processes, the structures that were built in. The the school was already a hub of the community. So those students who at that school, um, whose parents had to work two and three jobs just to try to make ends meet, that school already had the relationship, the partnership with the Boys and Girls Club. So they already knew which students needed that extra support. They were opening up their facilities and having those kids come in that didn't have the access or just needed that caring adult because their parents were out just trying to earn earn a living. They had the relationship with the hospitals, Ashanti. They came in for rapid testing and help because these were communities that were impacted by COVID more than others to get the additional therapies and all of that. So they already had that, that relationship established. They had the partnership with the food banks. So they were getting food out to their families quickly. It was quite remarkable how that school became a hub. And what ended up happening is those schools were more ready to reopen to in-person learning and especially to stay open because they had that support of services around them. But, and, and then I'm going to say this last thing about them. The way we approach our community schools is is something that I've been talking about and promoting forever. You know, we talk about our communities, our communities, always from this deficit model, you know, that our communities don't have anything to give or don't care about our kids. We care about our kids. We want our kids to have the same opportunity as all kids. Mm-hmm. But we have disinvested in communities from redlining um, to to the food deserts that I talked about. It's real. Um, And so when I think about community schools and how we look at those communities from that asset, they're an asset. Not only do we mine them for those assets, but our kids see their communities as that beautiful asset they are. And they feel, think about what that does for them. Mm -hmm. Right, right. So anyway, Mm -hmm. so that was my theory on the case. And I proved my theory to be true. 
none of us are surprised. <laughs> none of us are surprised, President Pringle. And I'm a big fan of community schools. I think they're really important. Also a big fan of Dr. Jill Biden. When I worked at the Department of Labor in the Obama administration, we did a lot of work with her around community colleges and tech skills. And she was just one of our biggest supporters around that, just letting these young people know you don't have to do the traditional four-year. There's all these other options. And, and we know in a lot of schools, those options don't get presented to our Black, Brown, and Indigenous students. And she was just all about it. So yes, I, I love having an educator in the White House. We can see the difference that it's making. So I want to talk a little bit more about the kids and the vaccine and vaccinations. So we're seeing that at the time that we're recording this, really kids age 12 and up are able to get the vaccine. We're still waiting on more information around the babies. How is NEA approaching this as there's a lot of pressure to return to in-person learning, even as this Delta variant starts to spread and become more dangerous. Let me just say that there is just no one who wants to be back to in-person learning more than educators. This is not, I, you know, I taught science for over 30 years. Can I just say I don't even know how my colleagues did it. I don't know. It's about leaning over them. And 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 when they can't find the paramecium in the microscope, that I can help them <laughs> look. You, I, I, I can't. Can, I just, I don't even know. I have no idea how I was doing experiential um, science learning from afar. So no one wants to be in front of our kids more than, more than educators. It's one of the reasons why we are so focused, as you know, uh, and maybe you don't know this, but we really, NEA worked really hard to ensure that our educators, first of all, um, had priority status to get vaccinated so we could get mm -hmm. the kids back to in-person learning. So the pri yes. president supported us in that. And we're now in the upper 90% of our members being vaccinated. So we're really excited about that. And I, let me tell you this, that our initial, we did an initial uh, survey and there was a gap between our white educators and our black educators uh, in terms of being vaccinated. And so we leaned into that. I mean, we t we let, used our black educators and community leaders and everything to close that gap. And, uh, and we did it. We did it. We closed that gap. I'm concerned about that same gap in our communities, our black and, and, and brown and indigenous communities. And so we are we are partnering with um, community organizations and leaders to, to get that gap closed because our kids are safest if the adults around them are vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Get vaccinated. Mm -hmm. Our young babies can't yet. What can you do for them? Get vaccinated. That's what you can do for them. I don't have kids, but I followed this issue closely because I care about our kids. I care about the future. And I'm going to be honest here. I would get really angry when I would see an article talking about kids who would just not show up for a week and having a hard time reaching the adult. And then scroll down a little bit, there's an article about parents who are stressed out because they're in their summer home and they have to turn the butler's pantry into an office or you know, a learning for their kids. And I'm just like, the disparities, the inequities. I'm like, I, I wanna know 
what are we doing to keep the baby safe? Because one of the things that I talked about a lot at the beginning of the pandemic is Rachel Rollins. She's the DA in Suffolk County. When everyone was saying shelter in place, she started ringing the alarm bell that home isn't actually the safest place for a lot of people. So what are we doing? What are the services to protect victims of domestic violence? And it just, it still hurts my heart that that's what people want to talk about is the stress of remodeling your home so you can homeschool your child. <laughs> I, I, yes, I, I, amen. I, I don't even know how to respond. Yeah, because I, I get that same visceral reaction. Um, and how could you be that tone deaf? How could you, you, you saw what was happening in this world, honestly, not just here in the United States, in the disparities. You know, every time I talk with anyone and, and they would preface what the question they were asking me or what they were talking about, like, you know, oh, the light is now shining on the display. The light was always shining. You right. weren't paying attention. I could have a lot of reactions when people say that to me, like, oh my goodness, disparities. How, do, how could we know? You knew. Instead of getting angry, I get active. That's what I do. And so what, what opportunities are we going to create that some people are now just seeing that reality? How am I going to use that? How am I going to use that to get our kids what we need? Because you know that we fought really hard to get the um, the American Rescue Plan passed. Mm -hmm. That didn't just happen. We We worked really, really hard. But the reality is that's, you know, that is one time money. What I'm challenging everyone to do is to, even in this moment, as we stand in those gaps, those immediate urgent gaps right now, we've got to think strategically. How do we get at these systemic? And and when I talk about, you know, I don't just talk about institutional racism. I talk about structural racism because mm-hmm. it's all of the social systems, right, that are compounding on our students and impacting their ability to learn. And so we've got to deal with it across all those systems. And we have to deal you know, from that structural level. How are we making systemic changes in this moment? So we're, I'm, I'm working with colleagues and allies to think more strategically about how we even use this money, the ARP money, and continue to fight for the budget that President Biden has put forward because his budget is, oh my goodness, it would be transformational because he, in his budget, he's actually trying to get to those systemic issues. And then how do we do it at the state level? How do we do it at the local level to finally close those gaps of access and opportunity in ways that will go into the future? That's what we have to do. Yes, and just everything I think that Biden-Harris have been doing around the ARP, it's, it's been really incredible. And it was a fight to get it passed. And listeners, if you just haven't been paying attention to what they're doing, it is really going to change the lives of these babies. Just the statistic that came out that with this new child tax credit, that it will lift at least 5 million kids out of poverty. Just that couple hundred dollars a month. That should tell us something that only a couple hundred dollars a month and we're lifting our babies out of poverty, but yet we gonna focus on the billionaires going to the moon. Let's priorities, priorities. President Pringle, this has been so amazing having you on. 
Last question, what are some ways that we can keep in touch with you, your work at NEA, and continue to support our students, the teachers, but all the school workers as we get back, you know, in the classroom? You know, some people have been doing hybrid in person, but what are ways that we can all be supportive, even the people like me who just have nieces and nephews, you know, I want to make sure that I'm doing what I can to make sure all the babies are good. You saying that means that you believe it's your shared responsibility. And in your own space, in your own way, you're, you're providing a form, but you're doing even more than that. You're, you're, you're using your megaphone to say to everyone, these are our babies. These are our babies. Um, And this is our country and this is our world. And we have a collective responsibility. I always like to share with folks um, what I shared with our NEA members. You know, um, we represent three million educators all across this country and around the world, actually, from aspiring educators to retired educators, higher ed members, teachers and counselors, um, paraprofessionals. And what I share with them um, is the vision that I have for NEA to unite not just our members, but this entire nation to reclaim public education as a common good and then transform it into something was never designed to be. And that is a racially and socially just and equitable system that prepares every student, everyone to succeed in a diverse and interdependent world. That is what I want to invite everyone, everyone to be a part of. Please, by all means, follow me on Twitter at Becky Pringle. Follow the work we're doing at NEA.org. We are about the business of transforming public education in ways that are exciting and so needed in this moment. And I tell you, for one, I am not letting this moment pass to do just that. I know our listeners are going to agree with me when I say you are the right and perfect leader for this time. Thank you for everything that you do. And everyone will talk to you for the next interview. Welcome back, everyone. Now, you know, there's absolutely no way that we could have this conversation without talking to one of our amazing teachers, as my friend David John says, teach the babies. So we have someone who teaches the babies here. We have Spanish teacher Ebony Thornton from Georgia. Ebony, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, um, everyone. So, Ebony, we have to start with asking, how are you doing during this time? Well, um, I am just kind of enjoying the last lingering moments of my summer vacation. It was short, and this year in particular, it felt shorter than usual, but I think that that was because last school year was so stressful. But I'm, I'm a little nervous about going back to a full classroom of 30 kids, 30, 31 maybe even as big as 36. I haven't quite looked at my rosters just yet, (laughs) but um, I did get to rest. I did get to spend time with some family. I kind of went down for a couple of days to St. Augustine, Florida and just enjoyed the beach and got some time in the pool and really took time to just 
relax and rest before going into the new school year. I was just very relieved that I survived, literally and figuratively. Well, we are glad that you took that time. Our teachers certainly are some of the MVPs during this pandemic with everything y'all have been doing for our students across the country. So when the COVID pandemic hit as a teacher, what is one of the first things that went through your mind? Because this is something that no one had dealt with before. It's kind of funny because we began virtual, fully virtual. I don't like to say the word shut down. And it really bothers me when people say schools closed or schools shut down. We never stopped delivering content. We never stopped teaching them. The mode changed. It was not face-to-face full-time, but I was still checking in with my students on Zoom. I was still posting content for them to do. We were still completing activities and things like that. But before we made that full virtual switch, it was kind of interesting because the students had already started to hear rumblings about the coronavirus as early as February. And Mm -hmm. I was telling them, you know, because we we really didn't know what was coming here in the United States in the coming months. I was like, guys, it's just, just keep your hands washed. It's, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Then I remember I teach in Gwinnett County and a neighboring Metro Atlanta system closed for positive cases. And the kids at that time, because they were thinking, oh, if the school closes, they were still kind of in that snow day mentality you know Mm. you'll go home we'll put you know they'll be at home they'll have a lesson to do post a discussion board question and then they'll be back in a day or two maybe a week at the most having no idea that on monday march 15th that i i had literally if you had told me that thursday march 12th that would have been my last day in my classroom for the 2019-2020 school year. I just said, you were crazy. I said, you're, you're overreacting. There's no way. And it ended up being that. And um, when I went back in May to kind of do the ending of the school year things and finishing up, it was kind of surreal that first time because my date was still on the board. The desks mm. were still how I left them. It was like stepping into not quite a time capsule, but just... It was it was like seeing something from an old movie. You know, I look at I look at pictures of things and games I used to do with my students and they were all running and laughing and, and everything. And um as those days turned to weeks, I remember feeling really sad for my seniors. The class of twenty twenty, they lost everything. There was no prom. There was no graduation. They just they missed out on all of that. And I remembered being really sad for them and then wondering what would be next? Would I have to teach on Zoom forever? Would, what, you know, could we even go back into the building? You know, there was in the beginning so many questions unanswered about how does it spread? Does it spread through, you know, if I touch this, if I touch that, am I going to have to wipe my desk down 20 times a day? Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what do I do if a kid gets sick? What do I do if I get sick? So, so, so many questions. It was just a lot of uncertainty and a lot of anxiety in the very, very beginning. Oh, what you just said is, is, is the reality of what it was like, not only for our teachers, but so many people 
you know, for my organization, we're still working virtually, but we're going to be going back into the office in a bit. And I was thinking, wow, the pandemic hit right when I took over our organization. So on my whiteboard are all of my original thoughts (laughs) from when I took over. And now when I go in, I'm going to be like wiping all of that away because we're also a very different organization. One of the things that I very much appreciated is when our nurses would share information about the virus and what they were seeing, you know, people who contracted the virus, they would talk about their experiences, but being very clear, this is what worked for me. It may not work for you. And we also had our teachers who would share what they were going through. And you were one of those teachers who shared that information. And you have this really great Twitter thread about coming back to in-person teaching. What made you just get on Twitter and say, I have to share this information. I have to share this reality with everyone. It was because I had already been back in my building for a semester. Different states have different protocols. So that first fall semester, we were virtual for fully virtual for two, two and a half weeks. Then we started what's called hybrid. And for anybody who's not familiar, hybrid teaching is basically where you will have some students who opt to be virtual and they're at home. And then you have some students who come into the building face to face. So what I would do is I would be on a Zoom call just like this. And I would basically teach the two groups of students at the same time. But what was, was I saw lots and lots of my fellow teachers just really getting very discouraged, especially um, at the start of what they looked at was the second wave. And it was during the holiday season and they were really making that recommendation for people to not visit family during the holidays, not enjoy, you know, and, and a lot of, I knew a lot of teachers were just scared, didn't know what to do. They were afraid of getting sick. They were afraid of dying. They were afraid of a student getting sick or a coworker getting sick or, or a colleague. And instead of patronizing them and just saying, well, I've been in my building since August and nothing's, and I'm not sick, get over it. I acknowledged that fear. I recognized it for what it was. And then I was just practical about it and said, okay, y'all, here's what it is. This is what helps me. It may or may not help you. What you, what you just said is, It's also just something we see not only in schools, but just in public around like vaccinations, people saying that I didn't contract it. I'm good now. I don't need the vaccine. So keeping that in mind, you know, but what are some of the things that are on the top of your mind as schools do go back in the fall? Because for a lot of the teachers, it will be their first time in almost like a year and a half. There are a couple of things that I worry about. One, obviously teachers who that's going to be their first time in a building. And for some of them, it may be the first time that they're face-to-face in front of 30 kids. That could be a lot of anxiety. If they are used to seeing their building, if they were hybrid, maybe only at about 50, 40 to 60% capacity. What are you going to do when there's two, three, 4,000 in some cases, kids? and the hall transitions at one time. How will you interact with them as far as um, just that mass number? 
of students. I also, as a black teacher, worry about, because um, I have to think about the the racial microaggressions that students experience. Sometimes schools are not safe for black students. They're not. Let's dive into that a little bit more because we do know that the inequities exist, but this kind of made a lot of people open their eyes to that. So we just, as a black woman teacher who sees this, you know, up close, just like tell our listeners really what you see and what our kids experience, because we're also seeing lots of black people saying, I don't want to go back into the office. I don't want to experience those microaggressions and the racism, the hostility again. It's it's a variety of of things, um, mainly just things as far as dress code um, in particular when it comes to young ladies. Um, and those are the things that I I worry about, not for my school, but just worrying about students who have not been subjected to those kinds of things. I mean, even if academically their grades may not have been where they want it to be last school year, being able to go to the bathroom when you want, being able to wear a hoodie, even if it's in your house if you want, mm-hmm. um, having a snack and it not be a big, like those would be enough reasons to honestly, and if I hear that all the time, Please take your, you know, I, I would just, I wouldn't want to go back into the building. And some parents, I believe, know that their children are not emotionally safe, even if they may be physically safe. It may be a school where, they're, you know, it is safe as far as there are not a lot of physical fights or things like that. They know how certain teachers feel about their children and they don't want them in those settings anymore. Um, I read um, a black mom was saying her son could just be a student. He didn't have to be the model minority perfect kid, always wondering if he did this, if he did that, was he going to be stereotyped? But he could just be a student and he didn't have to worry about all of that extra stuff when he was learning at home. Um, What is it going to be like for teachers when you have those teachers who get into power struggles with students? arguing, please put your mask on. No, I don't, you know, I'm vaccinated. I don't have to wear it. Well, you know, things like that. Or a student who lost a family member to COVID and they're in the same classroom as somebody who thinks it's fake. What, what will that lead to? So I get why there is very much hesitation, but it it isn't, it didn't just show up last year. It's always been there. Mm -hmm. It was just now the parents have the opportunity to really see firsthand, this is what my child has been going through. This is what other kids have gone through. I'm not sure I want to send them back to that. Oh, and just when you were talking, I was just thinking about my experiences that I had during school. And it's very real. It's a part of our lived experience as Black, Brown, and Indigenous people in this country. But even reading some of the stories where a lot of teachers still felt compelled, you know, I hate to, you know, use this term, but kind of like even police the home environment and was looking around and seeing what was going on and what's in the background. Why is that in your house? And then some of these schools even saying you have to have a uniform, you know, you have to look a certain way when you're on Zoom for class. And I'm just like, what? Like, 
leave these kids alone. Yeah, I remember specifically I had a girl ask me, could she go to, she literally, I was going through, I was, you know, in the middle of class and she said, excuse me, Ms. Thornton, can I go to the bathroom? And she was at home. I, I said, of course, I said yes, but she only asked me that because someone else said that you had to. I know that because that's, you know, mm-hmm. an expectation. There are things that have happened. There are some pretty, um, a lot of, no teacher wants to have that Zoom bomb where a student blasts explicit music in their class or they engage in sexually explicit activity right in the middle of the call. Those, those are, those are things that have happened and you don't want that to happen. So what I did, I was very nonchalant and to the point when I explained what my expectations were for learn for what I wanted my learning environment. I said, pretty simply, I said, okay, guys, I have one rule. If it's a referral in the room, meaning my classroom, then don't do it on zoom. And I asked them to tell me in a discussion post, what do you think that means? And they said, oh, well, we can't fight. We can't cuss. We can't. That was pretty much for me, all I cared about. I was not going to be overly picky if you had a snack during the call or if like one kid showed me his new pet lizard and we all got to look at it. And I thought that that was great. I thought that was so cute. Um, Or one of my favorites was every day he would have a different colored hair and I loved seeing him express himself or a different background every day on his Zoom background. Those were things because those were little ways I could get to know them and ask them questions about what they liked. And you can build relationships with them that way. And when you just kind of police those things, you, you, you police the students and you don't really get to know them. You don't get to know who they are. At the end, I was glad that they were showing up. There was so much emotional fatigue, I think, on all parties involved. So Mm -hmm. every day that they signed onto my computer, I was just happy. I just wanted them there. It didn't matter to me if they had food and they were eating. You know, I would say just mute because I don't want to hear you crunching. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, but um, I just wanted them there. You're such an amazing teacher. Thank you for everything that you have done, will continue to do. I do want to close this out by asking you, as our students start coming back, more of our teachers, our other school workers, we know this is going to be an adjustment for the parents. What are just some of the things that we can do just as your fellow humans to make sure that we're offering that support. And, you know, I ask that because I don't have kids. I have nieces and nephews that I think about all the time. I have colleagues who have kids. So I also had a firsthand look at the homeschooling and trying to do, you know, the job. And I was just like very, very flexible. I'm like, yeah, go help the baby with the math. Cause like, I can't help with that. <laughs> you can go help the baby absolutely, with the math. Absolutely. So what are those ways that we can support everyone? I think leading with grace is going to be probably the big thing. Teachers, be gracious with parents. Even the parents that are upset about something being taught that they don't even know exists. You know, this whole thing about, you're going to teach my kids CRT. If I can go ahead and say first, critical race theory is not That particular phrase is specifically taught in college. Mm -hmm. Now, 
That's the first thing. No K-12 school in the United States is teaching critical race theory. Mm-hmm. So period, end of sentence. That's the first thing. Secondly, are they going to teach things about our history that are not pleasant? Perhaps. Anything else is propaganda. Ooh, say that again. <laughs> if you're not hearing all sides of a story, you're not hearing the whole story. Mm-hmm. So that's that's why you learn the good, the bad, and the ugly. You appreciate the good, you heal from the ugly, and you fix the ugly, and you move forward and heal. You know, it isn't a matter, I think, in, a, in the history of Western civilization in the United States especially, it doesn't have to be either or. There's terror and there's beauty in the American narrative. We can't just... For some people who all you've seen is the beauty, you can't deny the people that have seen the terror. Mm-hmm. Hear the terror and heal so they can see the beauty as well. That, so that was the first thing. Be gracious. Um, I think we as teachers cut the kids a little slack, especially for some of them if they have not been in a school building for a year. It will be an, an adjustment period for them as far as being in and, and maybe not be so I would like to see a relaxation of not everything. You know, I know that there are certain protocols that have to be put in place for student safety and security reasons, but you know, no one died because a girl wore a crop top to school. It wasn't the end of the world last year that the kids had hoodies on and um, communicate with your parents. If you don't have a number that works, keep trying. Um, there are lots of reasons why they're not engaging. It isn't automatically, and I even struggle with this myself sometimes, I tend to get frustrated if I cannot immediately contact a parent because I assume that the lack of communication is a lack of interest, when in Mm -hmm. some cases they may be too busy. Mm -hmm. Or when you are transitioning out of poverty, a lot of times you don't have, schools are very centered towards a middle class slant Mm-hmm. A lot of times. And if you are not someone who understands those middle class rules and those middle class engaged and you, and, and you don't know and if you have not been around people who are either transitioning out of poverty or just from a different socioeconomic bracket, you don't realize that sometimes like open house being from eight to three in the afternoon. Some people don't get off work till five. So I would say the big thing, lead with grace. Two, don't look at this as the, we got to teach them everything they lost last year. They didn't lose anything. If they survived the last school year, then that was all they needed to do. Just give them a clean slate, just like you would want a clean slate. Mm-hmm. Those are the, um, the emotional pieces. The next one, couple of things are just going to be straight up practical advice. Um, if you teach high school and you are on the fence about vaccination, I can't stress this enough. If you have a child within the age limits, which is anyone 12 and up, get them vaccinated. Please, 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 please get them vaccinated. Not necessarily just for the sake of your child, but your child may be in the classroom with someone who's immunocompromised and they can't get it yet. If your child's teacher, even if the school, even if your state says no mask mandates, if your child's teacher has one in place, honor that. Have your child wear a mask in that classroom. That teacher may be immunocompromised and can't get vaccinated. They may be taking care of a baby. They may be taking care of a parent. Mm -hmm. You don't know why they are asking for that. And 
For the littles, I would still recommend if you teach, if you have children under the age of 12, have them wear masks anyway um, until they are able to receive their vaccine. Yes, we are pro-vaxxer over here. So yes to everything that you said. Ebony, thank you so much for spending the time with us today, sharing your knowledge, and we wish you an amazing school year. Last week, I got a text from my sister-in-law of a photo of my youngest nephew's first day of school. For him, it will be his first school year under the pandemic. For my other nephew, his brother, who is a few years older, this will be his third school year under the pandemic. When the pandemic hit in early 2020, as it related to schools, my immediate thoughts went to the students for whom homeschooling would not be so great. I thought about those who did not have internet access at home, those who did not have a quiet or safe environment to do distance learning, those who relied on school lunches for their meals, and as one teacher put it, the eight to 10% of kids on their roster that they knew they would never hear from or see again. These inequities have always existed, but became front and center and cannot be ignored. As students return to in-person schooling in many districts across the country, these inequities will still be there, along with COVID and its raging Delta variant. Many states are banning mass requirements and mandates in schools quicker than they are banning the teaching of slavery, racism, and white supremacy. Some of these governors have had a very busy summer being anti-vax, anti-mask, and anti-critical race theory. While children over 12 can be vaxxed, that still leaves a large portion of school-age children unvaccinated and thus at risk. New reports show that the Delta variant is more harmful and in some cases more deadly to children. Right now, Tennessee expects to see its children's hospitals reach capacity by the end of August. We should not be surprised though. All of the school shootings have not made people care more about gun violence prevention. So why in the world would anti-vaxxers care if children are being harmed? So in conclusion, as our babies head back to school, let's remember that us being vaccinated and encouraging others to get vaccinated helps protect them and all of us. Thank you so much to all of our listeners. Please take the time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your pods. For more information on the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, you can find us at thebgguide.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at thebgguide. The BGG Podcast is produced by Wonder Mia Network. You can find them at wondermianetwork.com. Tune into our next and final episode of the season where we will hear from COVID survivors in their own words. Until next time, Brown Girls.